Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Very honored today that we're joined by Chief Clarence Louie. At the age of 24, in 1984, Clarence Louie was elected chief of the Osoyoos Indian Band in the Okanagan Valley. 19 elections later, Chief Louie has led his community for nearly four decades. Known as the miracle in the desert, the story of how the Osoyoos Indian Band transformed a native community that once struggled with poverty into an economic powerhouse is well known. In 2003, Chief Louie was chosen by the U.S. Department of State as one of six First Nation leaders to review economic development in American Indian communities. In 2008, he received the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. He is a member of the Order of Canada and the Order of British Columbia. He has received honorary doctorates from the University of British Columbia and Queen's University. In 2013, Maclean's named him one of the top 50 Canadians to watch. In 2019, Chief Louis was the first First Nations person ever inducted into the Canadian Business Hall of Fame. Today, Chief Clarence Louis is with Banyan Books in conversation about his book, Res Rules, My Indictment of Canada's and America's Systemic Racism Against Indigenous Peoples. In Res Rules, Clarence Louis writes about his youth in Osoyoos, his first involvement in activism and the path he embarked on when he was elected. Direct and passionate, he writes about life on the res, including res language and humor, per capita payments, elections and the role of elected and hereditary chiefs, the devastating impact of residential schools, the need for First Nations to look to culture and ceremony for governance and guidance. Throughout, Chief Louis takes aim at systemic racism and examines the relationship between First Nations and colonial Canada and the US. He sounds a call to actions for First Nations. My thoughts are simple. This book is an education. It shines a light for Canadians and Americans to better understand issues that we think are only Indigenous issues, but which, but which are in fact Canadian issues and American issues. It can help us to understand the realities of life for the First Peoples of this land, 
in order to engage in real solutions for reconciliation and create a society where all of us can thrive, not just some of us. Peter Mansbridge says this of Res Rules. We all want to see reconciliation. Chief Louis wants it too. The difference is he delivers. And here's his plan. Banyan Books community, please join me in a warm welcome for Chief Clarence Louis. Chief, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you, Ross, and thank you, Banyan Books. I look forward to this interview. You make it, you make it very clear that there's a big difference between res culture and the traditional culture of your people. You say, the res culture is interwoven with over 150 years of colonial <coughs> cultural genocide. And like most things, it is both good and bad. Can you tell us about this? Of course, uh, prior to contact, First Nations never had a concept of reserves or the Indian Act, our private land ownership and, and the way that we've been administered by the Department of Indian Affairs. Of course, they changed their names to, to Indigenous Services Canada now. That bureaucracy, which is uh, well over 100 years old, still has a major role on what happens on Indian reserves. And of course, our people would not, back then, didn't speak English. They never understood the concept of maps on, uh, on a line or uh, lines on maps and um, what it meant to be that you're going to be placed on an Indian reserve. Our people would have had no concept of that. But of course, that's what we've grown up over. I've grown up over and every member of the Sioux Indian Reserve has grown up over for over a hundred years. And none of my people have a memory of before the reserve system. So the oldest person on our reserve that's 93 years old, she has no memory of how our people lived and functioned before an Indian Reserve. Thank you. You also write that it was the heartbreaking legacy of the trail of broken treaties in both countries, that's Canada and the US, that led me at the age of 19 to leave the Soyuz Indian Reserve and travel to Regina and then Lethbridge to take Native American studies. Addressing the ongoing injustices against my people became my calling. I think a lot of non-Indigenous people might not even have heard this, this term the Trail of Broken Treaties. I'm wondering if you can give us a bit of a history lesson on that. The Asuyus Indian Band, you know, the Okanagan Nation, we're like what's the Blackfoot people in Southern Alberta, or the Mohawk people in, in Southern Ontario, and all those First Nations that are, whose traditional territory are along, are, are, are along the 49th parallel. In 1846, when the British and Americans somehow decided that was divided, the going to be the dividing line between Canada and the U.S. Of course, my people were, our territory, my people were split in half. Half of my people are on the same system on the Caldwell Indian Reservation, just just, just across the border, not, not, not far from Osuyas. And so that's why in my book, I'm always related to both the U.S. experience and the Canadian experience in their administration towards First Nations people on either side of the border because it's the same system. And it's kind of it's kind of weird how the names are so close, reserves, reservations, Bureau of Indian Affairs, Department of Indian Affairs. Uh, their election systems, their federal system down there, our elections every two years, 
up in Canada under the Indian Act, the elections are, are also every two years. So it's the same system and they had resident, we had residential schools up here. They had, they had boarding schools down there, same system. So it's, so it's, it was a calculated means by which the leadership of the, uh, of the United States and Canada decided on how to deal with what they called in those old documents, the Indian problem. You know, we've got an Indian problem. How do we deal with these people? If we're not going to kill them all, then how, how, how do we administer them? And how do we get rid of their language and their ceremonies and their culture and, uh, and convert them into the Canadian and American society? And all the treaties, I mean, there's hundreds of treaties on both sides of the border. I mean, it's well documented that uh, none of the treaties were ever honored or respected. And in both levels of government, the federal, provincial, state, and province, always broke Indian treaties. You know, I, I find that so uh, not right when I hear when the Americans say the, the original sin of the United States is slavery. That's not their original sin because they're discarding the First Nations. Those thir the, the 13 colonies which created the U.S., the first sin they broke was not respecting Indian or Native land rights. That's the first sin for both countries, is breaking all the treaties that they signed with First Nations people. It wasn't slavery. Residential schools, I, you talked about you know, the Indian problem, this phrase that they, the founding fathers and their succeeding governments use, the Indian problem. And regarding the residential school system, you write, the philosophy was simple. Kill the Indian, save the child. You know, when I, when I was coming up with this question, I didn't even know how to phrase it because just thinking about this, the residential schools, it's horrendous. But I'm just wondering if you can tell us a bit about how that continue? I mean, the last residential schools were still in place in parts of Canada into the nineties. How are the, is this still impacting indigenous peoples and what do you think needs to be dealt with to, to, to heal this going into the future? People younger than me on the SC senior reserve were sent to residential school um, back in, back in the seventies. And our people were shipped to either Kamloops Indian Indian Residential School, three hours north of Osuyus, our ship to Cranbrook, which is like seven hours by train uh, east of east of Osuyus. So our people, by the wisdom of the Canadian government, were sent to both those places for many, many generations. And uh Negative impact of that can be seen in all the uh, socioeconomic stats of, of most First Nations where high alcoholism rates, high drug rates, family breakdown, poverty, um, loss of language, loss of culture. And um, it always reminds me of the story that uh, Tom Porter told us at the U of L, University of Lethbridge, during, during Indian Awareness Week. He came over and said, and he told all the non-natives in the audience, how would you feel, or what would happen to your society 
if China came over here and said from this day forward, none of you are going to speak English or French anymore. And every time we do, we're going to whack you on the head with this stick. And we're going to burn down all your churches and get rid of all your history. And we're going to assimilate you into Chinese culture. He said, I bet you a lot of America, a lot of Canadians would wind up alcoholics, would wind up with mental health issues, would wind up with broken homes, would wind up on the streets. And that's so true. I mean, um, Ukraine, you, you just got to look what, 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 what Ukraine is doing. Um, they don't want to be Russians. And good on them. And every First Nation wants to keep its language and culture. And if the government would have... I just can't understand how in a so-called educated um, people for hundreds of years could have allowed the, uh, the taking of Native kids away from their parents and away from their reserves. And, and as I told the group the other day, the Kamloops Indian Residential School is not hidden. It's in plain view. It's on the Trans-Canada Highway. How can non-natives say, well, we didn't know it was there? We didn't know this was happening to, to First Nations kids. I just don't get that. How, how the citizens of this country on both sides of the border kept on voting in governments that kept the residential school system going and the boarding school system going. That's on Canada and America. In the loss of language, I was on the Trudeau Foundation committee or board and I was in Quebec one time and I had headphones on listening to all these French people say how, how right it is that Canada is a bilingual country. How that their ancestors and the French had to push and fight to have French put on par with English in this country. And of course, when we're on planes or wherever, we, we hear the French language. And I put up my hand and said, I, I want to say something here. It's good. I, I applaud the French for what they've been able to do in this country with their language. But to all the French and English people, if your languages are so important, why don't you give the same consideration to First Nation languages, which you destroyed purposely with millions of dollars of funding to, to, towards residential schools and all of our most First Nation languages, the Okanagan native language, my native language is on the verge of extinction according to linguistics. And that's on the Canadians. So Canada has to reconcile that and provide the necessary funding to help save every native language in this country before it's gone in the next... There should not be one native language in Canada that goes extinct, not one. But so many of them in the next 10 or 20 years with the elders that are alive today, if something's not done on 
save in those languages. They're, they're gone forever. The French and English can always go to Europe. You'll always hear French and English somewhere in the world. But you'll only hear Okanagan first lang in language in Okanagan territory. We can't go anywhere else in the world to hear our language after it disappears from Okanagan territory. Chief Clarence, you, um, you're big on tough love, I know, and you take a tough love approach. How do you, how do you see the balance between, you know, asking people to step up to the plate and work hard uh, and the balance with the healing that needs to be done? Um, how do you approach that? Well, it's always, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm no psychologist, but what it's a chicken and egg thing. I mean, do people drink because they don't have a job? Or do they not have a job because they drink? Uh, I firmly believe is one non-native once said, the best social program is a job. Most people I know, and I'm sure, Ross, most people you know, work for a living. I don't think very many white people, Ross, you know very many white, your, your close inner circle that are on welfare. Whereas on an Indian reserve, we all know a lot of our people, a lot of our family members, cousins, whatever that are on welfare and can't get out of that cycle of dependency in that. Can't, can't break away from the booze or the drugs. Even on Suyus, I mean, 80% of my people are independent and work hard for a living but we still have that 20% that cause 80% of the problem because they just can't get, they just can't get away from the drugs and alcohol. And then if you look at, uh, look at that group, all their parents were in residential school. And when they came back, they, they were, they were alcoholics. And um, yeah. So, I mean, there's, Everyone has the same 24 hours in a day, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for recreation. The other eight hours to me, it's a pretty simple equation. You have to be involved in school or work. Most healthy people are involved in school or work. And that means employment. In fact, when you're going to school, what are you going to school for? You're going to school to get a job. That's what I think most people go, go to school for and get a degree for. It's employment. And um, I mean, prior to the reserve system, our people were independent. We provided our own food, clothing, and shelter. And our people didn't flick a switch. I mean, that's hard work to provide for your own food, clothing, and shelter. And there, there was no grocery store. You couldn't run down to Walmart and buy your stuff. You had to work your butt off to provide for your own food, clothing, and shelter. Is, is all tribal people. As I mentioned in, in my book, we come from a working culture before the reserve system because we had to provide for our own food, clothing, and shelter every day of the year. We just, just didn't go out and buy it from somebody. Sure, we traded and things like that. We had a system of trade and business with other tribes, other First Nations. But it's getting back to that working culture that every tribal society comes from. 
One of the things you talk about in the book that I love is you talk about res humor. Can you tell us a little bit about the culture around res humor? You know, it's, it's so neat and it's so, it shows how strong our people are and have been, um, even though all that's happened to us, all the broken treaties, all the land ripoffs, all the injustices, residential school and all the alcoholism, all that bad stuff, our people still have a damn good sense of humor. We, we, we joke around about things all the time. And sometimes white people can't, can't get the jokes or they think it's insensitive or kind of weird and wacky. Even non-natives, there's a lot of non-natives that work on, whether it's this reserve, Musqueam or wherever, uh, every res has non-natives working for them. And it's kind of weird how the, the, it takes a while for the non-natives to, to understand the, the res humor, even in, even in our offices. You know, I mean, the, uh, I've had some, I, I have some non-natives that have worked for us for over 20 years, 30 years. It's taken them a long time to understand the res humor and when we joke around about things. And, that, and that's the thing when you have, when you have humor, it's good, it's good medicine. You know, even no matter how, how down you are, um, humor always is, is very good me medicine. And, and I know with the non-natives that work for us, um, that, that's, that, that, that's how you know that you have a, a real relationship with somebody. Is when you can joke around with them and they don't take it as insensitive. I'll say to the white woman, it's worked for me for 25 years. Hey, white woman, get in here. And she'll say, what do you Indians want now? <laughs> you know, it's a, just like locker room talk. When you play hockey, you say shit in the locker room that never would people out in the stands would not get or understand. I mean, it's just good old fashioned locker room talk where, you, where, where, where you're on the same team and, and we can joke around with each other and the white guys in the dressing room tease us and we tease them and, and it's all good. It's all good humor. That reminds me, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about sometimes for non-Indigenous people, it's hard for them to get the, get the humor right away. And uh, when I look at non-Indigenous folks, I, I sometimes see two extremes. On one side, we have a group of people in Canada and the U.S. who might be kind of living in a sort of denial about Indigenous issues. And then they're on the other extreme, we might have people that are maybe overly sensitive or politically correct about issues. And it seems to me neither of those outlooks are helpful, obviously. One leads to apathy or denial. The other's kind of a paralysis around engaging. I'm, I'm wondering, what, what do you tell white or non-Indigenous people about what they can do to be allies or to engage in Indigenous issues? Well, I let them know just like the other a couple of days ago, actually yesterday, no, two days ago, we had a council to council meeting with the CUCD Band Council, the, the Mayor and Council of OCUs, the Mayor and Council of, of Oliver. And I've always told them that uh, the relationship we have to have is the original treaty relationship, which was based on business and commerce. Back then it was the fur trade. That's still business and commerce. And that's the type of relationship that every First Nation should have with their, with their adjoining city or town. You know, that our, our unemployment rates should be, should look like your unemployment rates. Our housing should look like your housing. 
and uh, and that we have to understand the uh, we, we we can't go forward without reconciling the past when it starts with especially when it starts with the land. I reminded them that we're 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 setting up a table with the provincial government, and this has happened all over Canada, especially here in BC. With all these provincial highways that were put through Indian Reserve lands, we've got about five provincial highways on our reserve. And often these easements or these, these right-of-ways that were taken back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, or whenever. And once they built the highway, they find they find out all these years later that they built it outside of their outside of the right-of-way. So it's still technically Indian Reserve land. And we're gonna we're gonna tell the province, we don't want your money. We want our old reserves back. Where the province controls them. In land claims, private land ownership is never on the table. Okay, I get that. But where the provincial government still controls old reserve land, and in this case, provincial parks. And I know the province does not want to give up any more provincial parks. But the history is there. The province took it with a swipe of a pen in, in that provincial park in O.K. Falls in 1915. They can give it back to us with a swipe of a pen. The term reconciliation means getting back. Isn't that what it means in accounting terms? Getting back, that the numbers have to get back to where they were before? Well, our reserve is 4, 000, over 4,000 acres short of what it was supposed to have been. And this plays itself out on, on a lot of Indian reserves so, all over the province of BC. There's a band up north that just got a major settlement, hundreds of millions of dollars from old reserve land that were ripped off. And, and, and non-natives have to understand that these rip-offs are there for everybody to read. And they have to, and they have to admit that, that they are injustices. And they're just like on the prairies where you see urban reserves being created because of the old rip-offs all over the prairies where there's reserves being created in the city of Winnipeg. And the mayors and councils should not be opposing any additions to reserves in any of their, in, in any of their um, regional areas. Even though I know that it's, it, it, it's at the foundation of every government to protect their jurisdiction, whether you're an Indian band or, or a town or city or regional district. You don't want to lose one square inch of jurisdiction when it comes to land being taken out of that. But it's been shown that all over Canada, many towns and cities are starting to realize, yeah, the Indians were treated badly. This is their only chance of getting some of their land back. And, and uh, we have to support the First Nations and rectifying this injustice that happened a, a long time ago. And that means we have, we're gonna have to give up some of our jurisdiction on some of these properties that the First Nations want added to reserve status. That to me is where the proof is, not, not in land acknowledgements at the beginning of a meeting or, or letting us drum or sing at your event or flying our flag at your, your, your municipal hall. Those are just baby steps. I think it's time for British Columbians and in, in, in all of Canada that, to take adult steps in terms of rectifying past injustices when it comes to the land. How can everyday citizens 
support that process? Is it a matter of, of writing letters and, and voting for the right people? Or what, do you, what do you recommend? Oh, exactly, exactly. You know, writing letters. I mean, should you see what happens with some of this other, I mean, some of this other stuff that goes on, the, the, uh, the, the, being standing on the highways and, and having demonstrations. Um, but yeah, you know, vote, voting the right party in, vote, voting the right leaders in, um, looking at what their, what their First Nation engagement strategy is, and um, realizing that reconciliation has to start with the number one issue that, that, that first caused the division between Natives and non-Natives. It always was the land. Thank you. There, there's, a, there's an issue that I think, you know, for me, I, it's, I had a vague knowledge that it was an issue on, on reserve lands and for Indigenous peoples, and that's the, the issue of per capita payments. Um, you write, I considered not even mentioning this very divisive and emotional topic, but it is too important to ignore, especially for the youth and future generations. So for those who don't know this term per capita, can you explain what that is and then tell us why it's such an important issue? Oh, and bands, I mean, it, it winds up in all the newspapers, uh, the local media, when a band gets a huge land claim settlement or they get huge royalties from oil and gas or whatever it may be. Often, not always, but, but more than not, bands will give out a per capita to each one of its members. Sometimes it's in the few hundreds of dollars. Sometimes it's in the many thousands of dollars. So each person gets, gets that check. And if you're 18 or under, 19 or under, it gets, it gets put in a trust fund. So if you're one or two years old, the per capita, if they happen every year, those per capita start to mount up to six-figure dollars. And when you turn 18 or 19, you're allowed to access your trust account, which means some uh, First Nations youth, you've got to remember they're, they're teenagers, 18, 19 years old. Some of them are getting a six-figure check. And most teenagers don't know how to look, how to properly look after a six-figure check. So there's a lot of dumb shit that happens with, uh, with per capita. Um, I've always said that there's nothing wrong with giving out per capita if it's based on some sort of, some sort of formula that's, that's sustainable. And not just to do what some bands have done um, whether it's up in northern BC, for example, or, or, or Alberta, where they've given out all of their one-time land claim settlement, or they've given out all their, their trust funds, and, uh, and uh, the car dealerships in the area got pretty rich off of that. And then, as one band said, we were poor before per capita. We started getting per capita, a lot of money. And then now, now we're back to being poor again because they didn't use that money wisely. They didn't invest it. They didn't buy businesses. They didn't put their people to work. They just handed out another form of a welfare check, in my mind, where you get a, a big check uh, and you don't have to work for it. To start of chapter nine, the, the title of the chapter is, it's the economic horse that pulls the social cart. You tell us, as a chief, when it comes to quality of life on your res, you only have two basic options. You either become a chief 
who is an administrator of poverty and underfunded government welfare programs, or you can become a chief who creates revenue generating jobs that make money for your first nation. That sounds pretty clear. Like it's, it's pretty cut and dry. Is there any middle ground on that or is it really that cut and dry? I think it's that cut and dry. I mean, any society, I mean, any of the G8 countries, I think that's what they're called. The economy is always the number one issue. I mean, most people, it seems whether you're on reserve or off the reserve, you, you can't, can't, you can't connect the simple dots. Everything costs money. I don't care if it's the health system, education system. I mean, that's usually the two biggest budgets in any provincial government. That money has to come from somewhere. It just doesn't fall out of the sky. It comes from the um, corporate taxes. It comes from natural resource development. Money to pay for all the things that we enjoy has to come from somewhere. And, yeah, you have to... You have to create an economy. I mean, every time I see a federal or, or provincial election, the number one issue is always the economy. Unless I've been listening to the news wrong. If, if, if there's double digit, if the unemployment rate hits, hits double digit, I don't care what provincial government you are or federal government, you're, you're, you're tossed out. So... So the issue of jobs is always the number one issue off the reserve. And I'm, I'm telling my people, we have to make jobs the number one issue on the res. Because that's, uh, that's what pays for everything. And it's always the business community that, uh, that pays for everything. I'm wondering, have you, have you had challenges or how you, how you deal with trying to integrate the positive aspects of what you're talking about around job creation and stimulating your economy with, with your ancient and traditional ways of your ancestral peoples. Have you ever found conflicts or challenges in those areas? Uh, and how, how have you dealt with those? Well, there's always going to be some conflicts and it depends on, like on, on every reserve, it's, it's a democracy. There's no, all natives on every reserve. Don't think and act and don't think the same way. Um, even in our internal families, our nuclear families, we have differences between siblings, brothers and sisters. Some believe this way, some believe that way. That's the way every reserve is now. It's not like before contact where, all, where we all spoke the same language and believe the same religion. And Nowadays, there's, there's, there's ways and means that are brought up from all these different cultures. Um, but there has to be a, you talk about balance. I mean, one of the worst things we do, I mean, as much as I support capitalist system, which is better than any other system, it still needs to have more regulations around, in, uh, around the environment. And then people have to realize environmental restrictions come at a cost. Don't, don't complain and whine when costs go up because everything costs money and environmental restrictions cost money. And uh, even on this reserve, there's, we're, we're, we're not gonna pave the res from one end to the other. If this wasn't reserve land, you can just take a look on the east side of Osuyus Lake. Look at the non-native side of the lake and 
look at the native side of the lake. The non-native side of the lake is fully developed. The Seuss Indian Reserve side of the lake, only a small portion of it is developed. So we're not interested in maximizing development. That term maximizing to me has to change. I mean, these companies can still make a decent revenue, decent income without maximizing, whether it's oil and gas or forestry. You don't have to maximize your annual allowable cut. You don't have to maximize oil or, or mining. Do enough to, 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 to make a decent profit, but you don't have to maximize. That, that, that's the term that I don't like is maximizing. So here on the Sioux Sinneries, we want a decent quality of life, but we're not going to maximize development. On, on this reserve. And when, when, we, and when we do leases, like say vineyard leases, for example, we leave wildlife corridors. We don't have to, but we do. Uh, we leave certain trees that say you can't cut those down. They have to stay. Um, even though we could lease out every, every acre of that vineyard development, we'll say, we'll, we'll, we'll tell the developer, let's leave X number of acres for wildlife for, for environmental reasons. And they'll say, well, that's good grape growing land. And we'll say, well, we don't care, leave it alone. We'll lease you out this area, but we ain't gonna maximize the lease. Leave a wildlife corridor, no bringing bulldozers in there, leave the land the way it is. And uh, so that's why on some of our vineyard leases, you'll see wildlife quarters. You wouldn't see that if it was on the other side of the lake. There's an issue around what you call pride of ownership on reserve and reservation land. In chapter four, you talk about it. You say that when you visit any reserve or reservation, there's two things you look for. You're looking for their band or tribal headquarters and any other community buildings. You're also looking at their housing and the playgrounds where children play. Can you tell us about why you do this and what you're looking for? I'm not looking for wealth. I really don't care how wealthy a First Nation is. I just want to see that they take pride of ownership in their community buildings, their community structures, their playgrounds, and, and that they provide nice areas. And, and they've set aside some nice areas for, for playgrounds and that uh, they look after their community buildings. I mean, I'm a big believer in quotes. There's a lot of quotes in my books from a lot of various writers. But one of the quotes was, what you walk by, you accept. So if you walk by garbage and you don't pick it up, then you accept that. Or if you walk by something and don't say anything, then I guess you accept that. And, and, and I think whether it's on reserve or off reserve, we got to quit walking by things that... Uh, that bug us or that we don't accept, that's for somebody else to clean up. Well, no, we have to, we, it's our responsibility to keep our community up to the standards that, that we think it should be at. Thank you. I just want to take a moment to uh, let our live audience know that uh, Chief Louie is going to get to some of your questions. So go ahead and type them in. I see we've had a few roll in already. Type it into the Q&A tab on Zoom, and we'll get to as many of those questions as we can in a couple of minutes. 
you just mentioned your, your love of quotes and you have a lifelong love of books and quotes. We're a bookstore, Banyan Books. I'm wondering if you can tell us about the role that books have played in your life. Again, another quote from somebody. Most people, including me, maybe you, Ross, we are influenced by two major things in our life. The people we meet and the books we read. That fits with me. A lot of my learning comes from books. Uh, I, I, I love books. So I got a whole stack of unread books and I'm always adding to my stack of, of, of unread books. But yeah, I mean, when, when you go to school, you're involved with books. When you get to high school, more books. When you go to post-secondary, more books. And I think uh, books are such a such an awesome way of learning, uh, life lifelong learning. And I love my cell phone now that I can listen to audio books on my cell phone as I go to work. And I, I just love that, uh, playing audio books. And uh, I mean, some of the most successful people in the world, um, look at their bookcase. I mean, I see books behind you. If I went to your house, Ross, uh, after we do our meet and greet, I'm heading towards your bookcase. I want to see what this guy reads that's made him what he is and how he thinks and acts. Yeah, so, so um, books are a big influence on most people's, most successful people's lives. And I'm always encouraging people to start their own personal library. Your personal library should be... Um, when your prized collections, and it is mine. I mean, it, especially my signed book collection, and that's that's one of my prized collections. Because if I go into your bookcase, I probably do the res thing, and I borrow one of your books, and you'd never get it back. <laughs> Thanks a lot. That's great. We've got some questions coming in from the live audience. If you're okay with tending to some of sure. those. Here's one that this is a good question. People might be wondering, this is from Allison who says, what is the meaning or importance of the motorcycle on the cover of your book? Well, I don't play hockey or ball anymore. Um, it's funny when I first became chief, uh, that's, uh, I'd never owned a new vehicle. And the first thing I bought new when I was a chief was a motorcycle. And uh, one of the elders old timers here told me many years ago the best way of seeing land is on the back of a horse because you're up higher you don't have to watch where you're stepping you can just sit there and look at the land in detail really good detail i agree with that that the best way of seeing a small area of land is on the back of a horse but the best the best way of seeing thousands of acres of land or hundreds of miles of land is on the back of a motorcycle. Of course, as, as we get older, we view things differently. We, we should, we should have become wiser as we get older. When I was in my twenties and thirties, I never paid attention to the land when I traveled to hockey tournaments or ball tournaments. But now on the back of a motorcycle, I love riding through these hills and mountains here in the Okanagan. I see trees I've never saw, be saw before on the back of my bike. I see rock formations I've never saw before on the back of my bike. I'll see a house up in the mountains that, I'd never, that, that, that I would never see from a pickup or a, or a car because you have nothing 
impeding your, your, your vision. And you get all the sights and sounds, the wind in the face, all the smells, all, all the riding motorcycles is, is, is what I love doing now. And I, and I ride motorcycles to look at the land. And I attend native motorcycle gatherings and events. And again, it's all around spirituality and culture and, and, um, and, and that's what I like doing. So I, that's why I have the motorcycle on the, on the cover. Thank you, and thanks to Allison for that question. There's one here from Edward who says, Chief Louis, are you aware of any other country where Canada could learn from the approach the government in that country took in reaching a constructive reconciliation and partnership going forward with their First Nations? New Zealand might be the, but, but again, be, again, it comes down to numbers because the, uh, Marway, I think that's how you say their name. They have a bigger population um, effect in that country than First Nations do. So, so in so in their parliament, they're they're allowed so many seats, Marway seats, and many First Nations in Canada have gone to New Zealand to look at their language nests on how the Marway are passing, are, are, are getting their language to the youth. I know people in the Okanagan have, have, have gone down there. So that would probably be the uh, country that's done things better with their indigenous people than Canada or the US or, or Australia has. Um, the Marway culture is more ingrained in New Zealand, although it's easier because it's a small island and there's really, <clears throat> I don't know how many different tribes they have, but whereas in Canada, I mean, it's not apples to apples because in Canada, the country is, of course, a lot, lot bigger. You got East Coast, cult East Coast culture, West Coast culture, Plains culture, interior culture. It's not the same, but still. New Zealand has done a lot. Thank you. And thanks for the question, Edward. There's one here from Shirley who says, what is the role of displacement and the Indian Act in undermining First Nation communities economy? I don't know what the term displacement would be other than that maybe that's the land ripoffs, but still the Indian Act, um, when, when Osuyus, when we want to do a land lease, we have to go through the Department of Indian Affairs, of which they're slow and they're cumbersome and they mess things up all the time. <clears throat> and also, Indian Affairs has environmental rules that the province doesn't have. And um, yeah, so, so, so Indian Affairs leasing process needs to be done quicker at the speed of business. The chiefs have been hollering at Indian Affairs for 100 years to move at the speed of business. And our leases, when, when we do leases, like West Bank Band, Squamish, or whoever, Kamloops, Indian Affairs is, is more of a hindrance than a help. And um, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's gotten better, but still, as many of our developers would say, when we finally get the lease through, they just shake their head at, at, at some of the dumb things Indian Affairs wanted 
and how slow they were and how they they didn't move at the speed of business because they're bureaucrats right they they're they're not, they're not the ones that that have to suffer the consequences of of losing a business on an indian reserve and indian affairs is more concerned about protecting the crown than they are advancing or getting first nations people out of out of poverty thank you Thanks for the question, Annie. This one is another one from Edward who says, Chief Louis, how would you see a future First Nations to, can to Canadian nation negotiation proceeding on a proposal to develop a new mine or a new pipeline or some other economic project that will cross several First Nations lands? Well, the way it's being, being done now, I mean, that's, um, there's more, which is good, more consultation, more, uh, more accommodation. Uh, First Nations people get to have a say and be involved, like in these pipelines, for example, or in a mine that's going to be happening in our, in our territory. So it improves a lot to the positive. It's good that way. Um, can it improve more? Sure, there's, there's, there's not a perfect system anywhere in the world, but it's gotten a lot better over the last decade, way better than it used to be. Um, a lot of these, uh, whether it's a pipeline or a transmission line or whatever it may be, you know, those, those companies do a lot of, uh, spend a lot of time, money and effort on negotiating um, proper, good First Nation benefit agreements, they call them, mutual benefit agreements. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks again for that other question, Edward. There's one here from Jessica. I think this is a great question. I wanted to ask you this too. She says, thank you, Chief Clarence Louie. You referenced your granddaughter. What is the one piece of advice you would give the next generation of leaders? I always say anyone will only go as far as their work ethic will take them. It's your work ethic that determines where you wind up. Um, if you can find a job and always, as I mentioned in my book, that one sentence, one of the most important sentences that I want to hear from my people, I love my job. If somebody can say they love their job, I don't care if you're a janitor. I've had janitors say they love their job. That's awesome because you can't open up a hotel or even our offices would not be able to stay open without janitors doing their good work. We have a bus driver on the reserve. He's he's never he's a non-native. I always wonder what's going to happen when when he retires. He's never missed one day of work, not one. And he's got one of the most important jobs on the res, and that's driving our future leaders to their place of work, whether it's grade school or or. And um, yeah, if, uh, is to try and find a job you love and to be able to say I love my job I mean we're different I mean uh, we're not robots people are different I have a band member that works at Spirit Ridge our, our hotel resort here she worked in cleaning I would never I, I'd hate that type of job but I'm not her we've got to remember we're, we're, we're not all the same and uh, she told me she loves her job and I walked away and I thought wow your success. 
even though you work in cleaning, you're a success, man. That bus driver is a success because he loves his job. He never missed a day's work. So for any of the youth, um, you, you have to find that niche, whatever turns your crank, whether it's in agriculture, um, forestry, business, golf, or we, we, we sent a band member down to California during COVID and he left his little baby behind. And I said, are you sure you want to go down there? It's 18 months straight. And he said, I found my passion. I want to be a golf pro. And he goes, uh, I'll show my commitment to it. I'm going to leave my young family behind because I can't bring them down there. I can't afford to bring them down there. And he just got back about three or four months ago after he spent eight, 16, 18 months down in Southern California straight. And he said, this is my passion. I, I want to be a golf pro. And people like that, you know, if, if you can find whatever work it is and you can say those, that one sentence, I love my job, you're going to be a success. You're going to have a good life. That's great. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question from the audience here. This one is from Darini, who says, well, first, I'm just, I see there's a correction to her question. So I'm just trying to get my bearings here. She says, this is a poignant and powerful talk. Thank you very much, Chief Louis. Question. Could you please speak to the diversity and approaches and intentions among the BC First Nations with respect to self-determination? In other words, it is my understanding that some First Nations may or may not wish to enter treaty negotiations. I wonder if you could please speak to the diversity of intention and approach, please. Thank you very much. Yeah, every res is not the same. Um, every res community is not the same. And I don't blame uh, a lot of the bands in BC for getting involved in treaty because their reserves are so small. I mean, some of our land leases, we lease out over a thousand acres of land on this reserve, residential, commercial, industrial properties. Our land leases are bigger than most reserves in this province. So, so I don't blame uh, uh, a lot of these bands for getting in, involved in treaty. Um, our band is involved in treaty, but that's because we, uh, we were lucky in the sense that uh, even though our reserve was supposed to have been 40,000 acres, we were left with a 32,000 acre res from which to make a, a life from. And yeah, there's differences in... There's, even though the res culture is, is so much the same, 80% of it could be the same, there's still 20% of, of, of difference. Um, and I'm sure every band, every First Nation, wants the same quality of life that everybody else in their territory has. And, and there's different ways and means of, of approaching that and getting there. Um, you know, some bands uh, have different systems of how they elect their leaders. And it's not to say one is better than the other, but that's why there's so many different ways of, there's not one way of democracy. It's not, and, it, and I know the U.S. thinks Canada's got a, got a weird democracy and Canada thinks U.S. has a weird democracy. 
So with First Nations people, there's there's differences um, in, in how you incorporate your traditional values and culture into modern contexts. Um, there, there, there's a lot of work to be done on that. And it's kind of cool in this era that we have, you know, these things that we look at not hundred times a day, the things we carry around, our cell phones. There's so much knowledge at our fingertips right now. You can just Google anything. And, it, and it's so neat to see that, uh, that the young people have so many of these good opportunities that they're going to make, bring um, different ways and means of, of looking at things. The example I want to leave with you is when we went... When I was growing up, the only job opportunities we had as a youth was working in the vineyard. That's hard work. That's manual work. As a 12-year-old, we'd be getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, being out in those fields at 5 a.m. and getting off at 1, at 1 p.m. because it was so hot in, the, in July and August here in the Okanagan. We'd have a hole or, or, or a shovel in our hand all day long. In this past summer, Six of my youth got to get paid as their summer job. They got a laptop. They got hired to learn technology. Technology was their summer job. They sit in an air-conditioned office, had laptops and listened to speakers and did other exercises around tech. And I thought to myself, I thought, wow, you guys are... Look where we've come from, from having a shovel in our hand and having to work in the vineyard to where now our youth are having, they, they can earn money during the summer learning skills, technology skills. And I, I just thought that was so such a contrast to where it was during my lifetime, where the only job you had was manual work in a vineyard hot, dusty, sweaty manual work. And now the Susie Ban youth, some of them have a chance to learn technology in an air-conditioned office and get paid. All That's their summer job. I thought, wow, that, that's pretty neat. That's pretty cool. Yeah, but there is su su such a realm of um, what the coastal bands do there in the Vancouver area with the bands up north do what the bands on Haida Gwaii do, what the bands in the Okanagan do. BC has uh, the most First Nations, of course, at just over 200, and the most Indian reserves at over 1,500, over 1,500 Indian reserves in this province. And uh, I've always said BC has the most to gain or lose when it comes to First Nation engagement and quality of life. Because no province or state has more First Nations or more Indian reserves than British Columbia does. Just want to take a moment to thank our live audience for being here. The Banyan community is so supportive. A big thanks to all of you for showing up and um, being a part of this conversation today and for all your great questions. To our podcast producer and events curator, Jacob Steele, thanks so much for everything that he does and to everyone that works in Banyan Books from the ownership down to the front of staff. And um, we've been speaking with Chief Clarence Louis about his new book called Res Rules, My Indictment of Canada's and America's Systemic Racism 
against indigenous peoples. Clarence, thank you so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate your time and, and sharing your wisdom and experience with us. Thank you. Any final thoughts? No, thank, thank you for having me on here. Thanks for the audience for the questions. And uh, yeah, this relationship between natives and non-natives, we, we have to reconcile the past before we can move uh, into the future. And there's a lot of messed up things that we still have to deal with between the loss of reserve land. And I just hope all the towns and cities in this province have a bit of a, more of an understanding about how BC came to be and how First Nations were left out of that dream. But now we want, we want to become part of the BC dream. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.